Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. Hi there, ABR podcast listeners. This is Georgina Arnott, Assistant Editor of ABR, here to remind you about the 2023 Calibre Essay Prize. Now in its 17th year, Calibre is one of the world's leading prizes for an original essay. It is worth a total of $7,500. ABR seeks non-fiction essays of between 2,000 and 5,000 words on any subject, personal or political, literary or speculative, traditional or experimental. The prize is open to all essayists writing in English. The deadline for entries has been extended until January 15, 2023, and details can be found on the ABR website. Good luck. What has spurred thousands of ordinary women in Iran and throughout the world to take to the streets under the slogan, Woman, Life, Freedom? How unprecedented is this recent uprising in the history of Iran's women's movement? In this week's ABR podcast, author-journalist Zoe Holman discusses the distinctive features of this protest and argues that its primary drivers are members of Iran's Generation Z, who are educated, fearless and angry. Zoe Holman, an Australian based in Athens, who writes on the Middle East and Europe, explains how the protests are being received in the Iranian diaspora. Unlike some commentaries in the Australian media, she notes significant points of difference within the protest movement. Here is Zoe Holman. With protests by members of the Iranian diaspora burgeoning across Europe and the rest of the world, I attend a demonstration in central Athens. A group assembles in front of the Greek parliament with two banners outstretched. The first reads, Woman, life, freedom. The second, the Iranian people no longer want the Islamic Republic. The mise-en-scene seems to capture the genealogy of a movement that began with the death of a 22-year-old Kurdish woman, Gina, or Masa Amini, on 16th September in Tehran following her arrest by the notorious morality police, and has since grown into what has been deemed the biggest domestic threat yet to the existence of the Islamic regime. It's not just one thing that people are angry about, It's a whole range of issues, a young Tehrani woman in the crowd says of the nationwide demonstrations whose suppression has to date cost at least 480 lives, including those of more than 50 children. And the more they keep killing people, the angrier we will get. She tells me that she's also been attending the protests in the Iranian capital and will go on doing so when she returns, despite her parents' prohibitions. We have no choice. It's the only thing we can do, to use our bodies. Maybe they will shoot us, but we have to continue. It is individuals like this young woman who have come to emblematise this uprising, with the average age of demonstrators in the first week of protests estimated at 15, and many of the most prominent victims of the security forces crackdown being teenage girls. Like Almany, who, while visiting family in Tehran, was arrested outside a train station for allegedly breaching dress codes, and who died in hospital three days later in highly suspicious circumstances, having apparently been beaten by police, they are ordinary adolescent women. As many note, 
any one of them could have been Amini. With demonstrations igniting in Amini's hometown of Sakhevsk in Iranian Kurdistan, the days following her death saw an explosion of their rage, grief and indignation. Thousands of women took to the streets or joined protests at schools and university campuses. They cut their hair, burned their hijabs and confronted security forces with cries of jinn, jian, azadi, or woman, life, freedom and death to the dictator. While Iran has witnessed several raids of protests in the recent decades, primarily the 2009 Green Movement and the so-called Bloody November of 2019, the current uprising is unprecedented in a number of respects. Notably, its primary drivers are young people, Iran's Generation Z, who seem to lack the fear, ideological creeds and political figureheads of their predecessors. They are educated, media-savvy and cosmopolitan, and after a lifetime of international isolation and internal repression under the Islamic regime, they are angry. But what is most striking is that the catalysts of this seemingly uncontainable force have been women. As activists hack regime-imposed telecommunication blackouts, social media has been flooded with images of women and girls engaged in myriad forms of resistance, defiance and combat. For the first time, the female body has been positioned centre stage as an emblem of political revolt. This is by no means the first case of feminist mobilisation in the country's modern history. In 1936, the move by Iran's Western-backed ruler Reza Shah Pahlavi to mandate unveiling as part of a modernization campaign stoked the outrage of women in Iran, many of whom were excluded from work and educational opportunities or faced punitive, often violent retribution by police surveilling. With the 1979 overthrow of the monarchy, women's bodies remained at the forefront of the ideological agenda, as the country's new theocratic rulers, led by Ayatollah Khomeini, sought to domesticate and traditionalise female citizens as a key pillar of its Islamization program. Just as the first written laws of the nascent Islamic Republic enforced the wearing of hijab, the first protests of the pre-revolutionary era saw women decrying the withdrawal of their rights with chants of, in the dawn of freedom, there is an absence of freedom. This objection to the continued denial of women's personal liberty has fueled the campaign against mandatory dress codes into the 21st century, as conformity, or lack thereof, with conservative veiling practices continues to dictate women's employment opportunities, particularly in the public sphere. Women make up more than half of Iran's university graduates, but only around 16% of its labour force, a disparity that reflects discrimination around personal dress codes. In 2006, Female activists launched the so-called One Million Signatures petition to abolish Iran's iniquitous hijab laws. Many of them were subsequently attacked and imprisoned. Despite being a focal point, mandatory bailing has not been the sole or paramount concern of Iranian feminists, but has instead formed part of a broader campaign of awareness raising and opposition to the systematic inequities of a patriarchal regime. The discontent unleashed in September also reflects popular outrage and injustices that go far beyond the violent enforcement of dress codes. Where Amini has provided an emblem with which many Iranians can identify, she could, after all, have been anyone's daughter or sister. Her death has triggered the expression of myriad and escalating grievances. Amini's death could be likened to an earthquake. Finally, all the energy that is built up is released, Sydney-based Iranian academic Satayesh Nuranajad tells me. A society under economic pressure over several decades, severely from international sanctions, and with the accumulating types of dissatisfaction, suddenly caught fire. 
Now the people of Iran are protesting more broadly against the entire way of governance, she says. Indeed, what also distinguishes the current mobilization is its geographic, social and political breadth. Anti-government protest has not been limited to Iran's major cities or secular middle classes, but is filtered through economic and demographic tiers, as was reinforced last month with the closure by protesting vendors of Tehran's iconic Grand Bazaar, an attack on the home of Ayatollah Khomeini, strikes across sectors including trucking, nursing, oil and gas, and the high-profile refusal of the Iranian soccer team to sing the national anthem at the World Cup in Qatar. The upheaval has been nationwide also. Many of the most fervent protests and deadliest crackdowns have occurred in Iran's provincial strongholds of opposition, most notably Kurdistan and southern Sistan and Baluchistan, where a protest on 30th September in the city of Zaydan against Amini's death and the alleged rape by a police commander of a 15-year-old Baluchi girl resulted in dozens of people being killed with live ammunition in an event dubbed Bloody Friday. It is this ruthless intransigence by the security forces coupled with economic grievances, that has fermented an unprecedented intersectional opposition to the regime, drawing in those who might ordinarily have expressed political or religious affiliation with Iran's leadership. Unlike the urban-based Green Movement of 2009, which demanded the holding to account of the government, discontent has since billowed into a more generalised demand for the very abolition of the government in its current form. Where 2009 saw demonstrators take to the rooftops in major cities nightly with calls of Allahu Akbar, the widespread rallying cry is now down with the Islamic regime. As Canberra-based Iranian academic and activist Mariam Hazeli Dobson says, since bloody November of 2019, we can see that the working classes are more engaged, as none of the promises by Ahmadinejad or Rouhani have come true. Similarly, although Iran's population is the most secular in the region, developments since September have alienated many adherents of Islam who have come to see the government's coercion, which is more typical of a Saudi-style Wahhabi brand of Islam, and brutality as undermining their religion. Even those who choose to wear hijab have expressed sympathy and solidarity because they live in a patriarchal society that has forced other things upon them. The government's ideology has become one of force and violence, and this is seen as having damaged Islam, says Ghazali Dobson. No matter if they live in a big city or small town, are employed or unemployed, I hear from everyone I talk to that the regime has fallen in people's minds. Despite the unity of many of the protest slogans, the movement is not without internal fissures. For while Amini could seemingly have been any ordinary young woman in Iran, she was not, and it's her Kurdish identity that is telling. First, the violence signified by her death was not that of a gendered oppression alone, but also a national oppression by the Islamic regime that has continuously subjected Iran's national minorities, who comprise an estimated half of the total population, to cultural assimilation and economic deprivation. It is this discrimination that compels many Iran's some 10 million Kurds, like Armeni, to adopt administrative names alongside their given family names. The fact that her Persian name Masa, not her Kurdish name Gina, has been most widely used in protests and media coverage speaks to the ongoing erasure and marginalisation of the Kurdish struggle, whose proponents make up almost half of Iran's political prisoners, some of them among the longest serving. This parenthesized naming is a continuity of national oppression under more than 40 years of rule, explains Shahzad Mojab, Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Toronto who participated in the Kurdish movement in Iran before being forced into exile. The defining slogan of women, life, freedom, 
in fact has its genesis in the Kurdish women's movement, which originated in the struggle of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PPAK, against the colonial and patriarchal Turkish state. As Mojab notes, Kurdish women in Iran have publicly opposed the Islamic regime since its inception. From the 1990s, a distinctive women's civil society activism has evolved. While solidarity between Kurdish women and those active in the rest of Iran has been limited, the recent uprisings indicate a shift. The strong nationalism is a force to be reckoned with, but at the same time, the level of unity that is happening now is unparalleled, says Mojab, noting how concerted campaigns to use Gina's name in protests and slogans calling for uprising from Kurdistan to Baluchistan reflect the fact that many Iranians are now looking to Kurdistan as a beacon of resistance. Such forms of recognition will be essential if the current mobilization is to cohere into a movement that at once opposes internal and state-sponsored gender oppression while also pursuing broader questions of national rights. Equally, the unity, autonomy and internationalism of this struggle will be crucial if it is to successfully resist co-option by Western liberal agendas, either those of geopolitical interests or of a colonial feminism, often promulgated by Iranian diaspora campaigners, that locates the struggle within the specific culture and traditions of Islam. Whatever the direction protests might take, it is clear that the movement has long passed the point of no return. As many women now go about their lives bareheaded and unpenalised in Tehran's main boulevards and cafes, it is clear that the campaign has ushered in changes that cannot be undone. Claims in December by senior officials that the morality police would be disbanded suggest a rhetorical acknowledgement of these new realities. Yet the regime's subsequent mixed messaging about the status of the unit and mandatory hijab laws provoked staged walkouts by shopkeepers and drivers in more than 40 cities following calls for a three-day national strike. It remains unclear what concessions Iran's leaders will be willing to make in changing the core tenets of the Islamic regime, if indeed the republic is to survive at all. Since the outset of protests, the regime has stuck firmly to its standard playbook of tactics. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, Iran's supreme leader since 1989, has blamed the unrest on agitation by the usual suspects, Iran's foreign adversaries of the US and Israel, the dregs of the Shah's regime, domestic separatists. The regime has attempted to sever communications between protesters and the outside world. For example, the journalist who broke the story of Amini's death was promptly detained in Iran's notorious Evan prison. Its parliament has urged the judiciary to deliver harsher, swifter punishments to protesters, including capital punishment. Two protesters have already been publicly hanged and at least a score more face death sentences in sham trials. The momentum of protests being undiminished, the regime's use of force now appears a sign more of weakness than of strength. At the same time, Iran's discredited political reformers, lagging woefully behind popular demands in what some see as a bid to maintain a share in political power, have largely alienated protesters. This has only intensified calls for wholesale regime change. Such a prospect, however, remains highly speculative in logistical terms, and not without the risk of a serious style, Assad or we burn the country, fight to the end by the regime. Western governments, meanwhile, have for the most part responded with well-worn statements of condemnation and threats of escalating the existing indiscriminate economic sanctions that have only suffocated livelihoods and fueled discontent among Iran's population. Any local efforts at endogenous political change also remain at risk of exploitation by an opportunist and interventionist West with its baleful record of imperialist regime change in the region. In videos posted on social media, university students chant, 
Don't call it a protest, call it a revolution. Whether or not that end can be realised, it is clear that the movement's legacy will be irreversibly revolutionary. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to AVR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.